Welcome to The Ledge. My name is Chris Harper, and I'll be your host every week. Every Tuesday, I will interview an artist, developer, or creative mind from the Web3 space. I'll be getting up close and personal with my guests as we explore the emerging crypto art and NFT scene. It is my feeling, along with many others, that we are in a digital renaissance. The emergence of blockchain technology has revolutionized the way we look at ownership, provenance, and digital assets. It is my goal as your host to help shed light on these complex subjects and even more so the individuals behind it all who are carving out their place in history here on the ledge of Web3. My name is Chris Harper. I'm here today to interview Jessica Cartolucci. She's a photographer and an NFT artist, a crypto artist in the digital space. Uh, Jessica, I met you on Twitter. We became like kind of Twitter friends. I was a big fan of your work. I like, um, I love your art. And uh, actually, I found out about you through uh, through your collaboration, I guess, or you were being curated by 33NFT, which is how I came to, to know who you were. And then I heard you on a couple of spaces. So um, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate having you come on the show. Thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. And it's always exciting, actually, to hear how you guys discovered our work. So thank you for sharing, because I didn't realize it was through um, 33, who's one of my collectors as well. And same, it's such an honor anytime someone collects and wants to share your work further and help with your career. So it's really exciting to hear that you know, that's how you discovered my work and continue to follow it and connect with it and, you know, led me to being here. So very thankful no, for that. No, actually, I remember very specifically what uh, the thing was. It was... Um, one of your pieces, the the three palms pieces, I think, was curated by thirty three NFT and put in like on a super rare, right? A super rare. Yeah, so it's actually my um, image for palms. It's four part palms, of right. the yeah, um, part of the their super rare gallery, the thirty three gallery or the super rare spaces. Forgive me, um, and that's actually a feature that super rare was rolling out, where they're essentially giving. Um, letting people who apply and awarding these spaces the ability to, you know, further curate artists on Super Rare. So 33 was one of the first spaces um, to launch on Super Rare. So it was really an honor that um, they reached out and asked if I would want to have a piece included. So it was fun. And I that's what I love about this space is being part of something new and trying something different. So it was really exciting. And that was actually my, my Super Rare Genesis, my first piece that I had on the platform um, being invited by them. So that was a huge honor to me. So a really special piece to me and very thankful for that opportunity to kind of collaborate in a way. It's still my art, but to do it with them um, in these new spaces that we're launching on Super Rare was a pretty cool opportunity. I can't imagine like if you're a new artist emerging into like this crypto art scene and you get like picked up by 33, that's a pretty big deal for you, right? It was. And when I came in, um, I discovered the industry from Clubhouse and just was so fascinated right. by the tech end that um, I really, like, I have a, a little bit of a tech background. I've always been kind of a tech nerd and loved uh -huh. art at the same time. Right. So I understood the tech, but when I came in, I didn't understand like all of the collectors and how much, how many exciting things were going on just beyond the tech. And I slowly learned as I released my art. I mean, it was a huge honor because I just put my work on OpenSea, which is, you know, a wide mm -hmm. open platform. And essentially sure. it's mostly up to the artist to, you know, get exposure and have their work seen. So when I released my work of the Wild Mustangs and 33 picked up two pieces originally and then added a third um, a few weeks later, it was like a huge honor. And I wasn't even aware, uh, you know, of some of these collectors. And then I saw who collected my piece and like instantly looked at the work they had collected and was like, wow, this is 
absolutely shocking. It like took my breath away, like to see. And I'm obsessed with their collection as well. Like I drool over the art they collect. So to see me as kind of essentially a a newer, unknown emerging artist come into the space and on OpenSea and have someone like that recognize my work was really a huge honor because I didn't come in, you know, as a super rare artist with any you know, support like that. I kind of just, you know, bootstrapped it. Just this is my work and I believe in it and I want to put it out there. So it was really, that was a big honor to have that. So, yes. So I remember I heard you on a Spaces and you were, it was you and another artist who I really like a lot. And I want to get on the show is Victoria West. I love her. Yes. You guys were on Spaces together. So that's when I I remember um, finding out about you. And this is actually pre-podcast. I didn't even have the podcast idea yet i was still kind of trying to figure out like what am i gonna do in web3 because i'm not an artist <laughs> <laughs> no i love it this is amazing yeah. and it's yeah. that's what's fun too is having more um of the community and the collectors be a part of it i mean you know if it's just us artists like that's kind of boring in a way it's really fun yeah, to actually have people in here you gotta that, have other people right yeah yeah and it's fun to hear how people appreciate the art and perceive the art and interact with the artist and that's really a part of the industry that excites me too is there's been sorry not to get on a tangent here i have a no it's okay keep me online but that's what i really enjoyed about this space too is there are so many collectors that i think felt like not that they didn't like art but kind of didn't feel maybe welcome in traditional art spaces. Like they felt uncomfortable walking into a gallery, like it was somewhere they didn't belong. And this is all of a sudden a new space where they can meet directly with the artists and it feels more inclusive and it's brought in more collectors that wouldn't normally collect art. And even some people that have collected my work have said, have shared with me like, oh, I just bought your piece because I thought it was cool. But then I learned more about the art and the photography and specifically the Mustangs and why I was doing it. And then it kind of drew them deeper into the art and why a lot of artists are here to create and have their work valued, you know, as art. So that's pretty cool to see collectors, you know, adamantly say like, I have never collected art in my life and just being drawn into this industry has inspired me to learn more about art and collect more art and value it in a different way that they, you know, didn't know, didn't know they could before. That's a really great point, actually, that I think you just brought up. And that's something that I hadn't really considered until you just said it, which is that, there's a whole bunch of people in the world who are maybe intimidated or never never thought about like going into a proper art gallery because it's like, I mean, it is, I guess, a little bit intimidating. You don't know what you're doing if you don't know yeah, anything and about it. And you're thinking even about myself. Like, and then you like look I've at the stuff, looked. you go to galleries, you see the stuff <laughs> hanging on the wall. You're like, I don't know who these artists are. I don't know anything about them. In Web3, it gives us more of an opportunity. You're right. Uh, not only collect art, but connect to the artists. Which is really yeah, and even as an artist, like I've always loved art, um, and that's something that. But I never really thought of my career as an artist. Like I almost didn't think that was an option mm-hmm. for me. Um, right. I did into Brooks, the Institute of Photography, but I kind of felt this. It's almost pressure I put on myself, I think. But I pursued a traditional Bachelor of Fine Art, Fine Arts, and decided to study graphic design, more of a commercial art, because I felt right. like I didn't understand the path of becoming an artist. Like I I just felt like those options weren't really presented to me in a traditional setting. And just, I kind of felt like I'll pursue, you know, a safer degree, but I've always loved art and photography and I've just always pursued it on the side. So I think this industry is really interesting because it's opening up more conversations about the art and, you know, artists trying to make a living. And it's just, it's given more opportunity to people that I think didn't realize it was there and didn't felt included. And even on the artist side as well. So I think that's what's exciting because I've always loved it and pursued it. But even myself, like I am very self-taught. I've had to 
you know, go into galleries and museums and study photography because it's not something I, I didn't, I don't have a BFA in photography. I, oh, you know, wow. I studied a commercial art. So, but that's what's really exciting is seeing people inspired, like truly by the art and wanting to push it further. Let me ask you some background questions. Like, tell yes. me, tell me, okay, tell me, let's, where are you from? Um, where'd you grow up? Where did you, where do your parents live? What do your parents do? Things like that. Still about a little bit yes. about your background. So I am 34. I'm from Newport Beach, California, which is in Southern California. So for those who aren't familiar, it's about an hour south of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up here. So my parents are from Southern California as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually did move up to the Bay Area with my husband for ooh, the last like five or six years. I think it was 2016 to 2021. And then recently, um, when we had our son, decided to move back down to Southern California to be closer to family. And especially with the stress of the pandemic, it was something we, you know, I think a lot of few people felt that need of wanting to be closer to family and kind of reevaluating things in your life that you wanted. So we came, decided to come back home and we're really excited to be back down, but I still do consider Northern California as part of my home as well, but I am born and raised in Southern California. So it's also fun to be back. You're, you're definitely a Californian at heart though. <laughs> yes. And I, I married a surfer, so I'm very thankful he doesn't want to leave the coast either. So <laughs> we both agree on that. <laughs> Uh, what was your education? Did you go to like public school, private school? What was your like yeah, your early, um, early education like? Yeah, I went to public school. I mean, we're very thankful we have great public schools in the area. For sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, public school. Uh, well, for college, I did. I went to Chapman University, which is a private university. But I did go to Orange Coast Community College right my on. first year because, like I said, I applied to. Um, Brooks, the Photography Institute after high school, because I was Uh so interested in photography. But it was that same, I believe they weren't offering a bachelor's at the time. And I kind of looked at it like, I love photography, but it was a very expensive school. And then it didn't offer a bachelor's. And I remember someone asking, like, if you change your mind at all, like this degree is not going to apply if I decide to do marketing or, you know, something else down the line. And that kind of scared me, like investment wise. So that's why I decided to go with a traditional a bachelor's degree and studied a commercial art, but I actually went to a community college for a year because I was so like undecided and kind of, I think a lot of creatives and artists feel that way. Like it's such a hard industry, you know, it's like you want to create, but you want to be realistic and have a, you know, a backup career in a way. And I kind of struggled with what to do with that because I loved photography and I had actually been working for a photographer on the side as well. I did some like event photography here and there and learned a bit of that, but I didn't what, love What got that you into industry. photography as a young girl? So it sounds like you, you know, it sounds like you came yeah. to high school interested in photography. You must've started before that. What was the yeah, thing that got really, you into it? It's always been there and I'm not sure what really started it. I actually, my mom shared an old picture. I think she took of me in my grandma's lap when I was like six months old and just, I'm holding her camera. Oh, it's wow. funny. I'm like, I don't know. It's always been there. I guess. What did your parents do? Like what kind of jobs did they have? Yeah. So funny you ask, I don't talk about it a lot, but my dad was a photographer and, and he used to <laughs> photograph. Um, <laughs> he did like music and event. He was the house photographer at the forum in Los Angeles, which is kind of oh, wow. cool. Yeah. Um, but he eventually did give it up and pursued, you know, a more stable career because it's, it's hard to make a living as a photographer. And even today, you know, many will still share that even in, you know, a lot of the event wedding industries, it's so competitive and 
Um, But it is kind of fun because I almost forgot about that a bit myself since, you know, he's not actively pursuing photography, but he (laughs) had these really cool pictures in the garage of all like the rock stars he shot. He's got some of like Prince, Corey Hart and some other cool like guys. And it was really fun to see like what he used to do. So um, I don't know, maybe that has kind of always been in there. He definitely never pushed me. Like I don't, my parents have never. And you have a little thing for like historical photography too. Like you, I you, do. you and I have talked about this in, on, uh, in our chat on Twitter. You have like a little, you have a thing for like some like really old photography actually. Yes. So I don't <laughs> know where <laughs> the photography, I'm not sure where, I mean, I, I, sometimes I just feel like it's kind of in my blood and maybe from my dad for and my sure. family, that's probably where I get it, but he never pushed it on me. I don't think it was till I was in high school that he, he still has his old Canon A1s, which work, um, which wow. is really cool. So he let wow. me play with them and he's got some like really fast, nice glass. Um, so that was really fun to kind of play with some film. Um, but I've always, even before that, like my mom would buy me little like Polaroid cameras, those mm-hmm. disposable, what do you call them? Those Rite Aid, like, you know, one roll of film, you yeah. drop it off and get to like I just loved those to so go on vacation instant. and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and when I was a kid, you know, they're like, "We're not buying you a real camera." Here's this, <laughs> and I just loved it. Like every right. vacation we'd go on, I couldn't wait for the camera. That was like my treat on vacation. Um, so that's kind of just really where it started and just continued to grow. And then I think as I got older, um, I think because I wasn't exposed to the arts per se, that, um, like I said, that didn't come until I was a bit older. And especially when we moved to San Francisco, I think when I was, I had been pursuing fine art, but uh, I just really wasn't exposed to much until we moved to San Francisco. And for some reason, I just really fell into, like, I became a part of SF Camera Work, that organization. And, you know, do you remember what the catalyst was that got you like kind of kicked over into like the final Yeah, and that's when I kind of spiraled into like the history of photography. Like you said, like I became kind of a nerd and I'd go down to um, Carmel and into like the Weston Gallery is one that I really love and, you know, their artists and studying. That's when I discovered Imogen Cunningham, who's inspired a lot of my work. And I don't know, I just kind of fell in love with some of that like old traditional photography that I feel like you don't see as much anymore. Um, And I just really had this like new appreciation for it and just kind of fell deeper and deeper. I feel like that's totally your vibe and you're in the art, at least the art that I see you releasing on, on web three, like in the NFT space, right? Like it's not just like mass produced like photographs. You, You have a very like, slow steady drip of very slow (laughs) (laughs) yeah but and it's definitely like got a style even though you know the subject matters are always something different it seems like it's a very like it's got like kind of old vibe to it you know like old-timey vibes am i wrong (laughs) oh no you're right yeah um yeah, and I, I, mean, I love to play. Like some of my images, people, uh, a few of the landscapes that are darker, people have almost described as like this solarized look. Right. Um, so sometimes I kind of push the tones. I sometimes I struggle with calling myself a minimalist because I don't shoot minimalism in a traditional way, but I do feel like sometimes that's the best way to describe my work because even in, for example, like Cypress at Point Lobos, there's like all these trees wrapping around and framing the one that's out at the point, but I really compressed the tonal range in a really unique way because I get right. overwhelmed very easily. So if there's almost like too much contrast, too much texture, too much in the composition, I get like, there's too much going on. I need to like calm the scene in a way. And sometimes I do that through tone. So um, the way I, and I keep my editing pretty straightforward. I use Capture One 
Um, I try really hard to, you know, not retouch anything. Like very rarely, maybe I'll remove sensor dust or something, but I do try to keep it as natural as possible, but really just push um, like the tones in my work, how I want that piece expressed. So that's one way I kind of embrace the minimalism is through um, tone, if not through composition. And I think there's always, you know, and not every piece is exactly the same. Some of mine have more dynamic light, but some of them, it's almost like, I don't know, I have this unique approach with how I'm like, this is too busy. It needs to be like soothed out in the way I want the scene to be seen. So that is one way that is kind of unique in some of my work. Yeah, I could see that. Let me ask you a question and I ask everybody this. What was the first thing that you created that you can remember calling art? Do you remember? Ooh. It doesn't have to be a photo either. It could be whatever it was. Like, you know, we've gone through a bunch it's- of different things. People have made, you know, stuff for their parents in pottery class, little paintings. yeah. <laughs> I mean, probably stuff at school, but truly, yeah. I mean, Polaroids. I mean, Polaroids my mom would just buy me the cameras and I just loved, and I, I wonder if I even have some of the Polaroids. I know I have some of my early, early, early shots of like those disposable cameras, which I still love. Whether you call them art or not, I don't know. But I thought they were art when I was I like I think five, it's art. So. Everybody answers this question <laughs> in a different way and not everybody's like know, right? maybe remembering the exact thing they first colored in kindergarten. But, you know, everybody's got like something in their mind that kind of just sticks out to them. Like, oh, yeah, this yeah. one project I did when I was in third grade. Yeah. And I always loved I am um, like horses and the ocean have always been big themes in my life. And a lot of them were like landscapes and places we traveled and the horses were things. What's your connection to horses? Did you ride horses? Were you involved? I did. Um, And same. It was kind of funny. My mom actually rode horses when she was younger Uh and then obviously gave it up when she got older because as I've experienced, life gets busy and it's just (laughs) too much to handle it all. But um, I discovered she has these little they're called briar horses these like plastic horses that you can collect and play with and she had some really old ones from i don't know back in the 70s or something um and i discovered them in an old dresser in my grandparents room and was like i want a pony and my parents were like oh no like i'm like eh, it's okay every every kid wants a pony she'll just give it up and then it just never stopped every single year for like 10 years i asked for a horse for christmas and they were like we're screwed so my dad made me a deal and was like if you still want to ride by the time you can like compete on a high school team um like we'll get you a horse and they basically gave themselves like 10 years to try and like save up (laughs) to afford a horse and I'm very thankful that eventually I was able to have my own horse and um I did compete competitively um I used to do um show jumping wow and then my my horse passed away actually a few years ago um right before I had my Uh, what was your horse's name uh nice yeah, so that was really fun. Um, but it was sad to to lose him. It is kind of like oh, the next yeah. next chapter in life. But yeah, it's most of my life I took lessons since I was about uh, seven or eight. I want to say they actually made me wait until I was old enough because yeah, you know it's kind of it's a bit dangerous with horses sometimes. They wanted to make sure I was old enough. Um, but I would go like once a week and have a little a little lesson until I was old enough and that we could I could have my own horse. So. And you have yeah. a and you have a, a project called Wild Mustangs that you minted as uh, NFTs. Yes, yeah, so actually that's the perfect collection to bring up. Was I started photographing those? So my horse had been retired. Oh, I'm trying to think of how many years. Um, he was about 25 or 26 when he passed, and I think he retired. We retired him maybe his early 20s, where you know physically things were getting harder on him. It didn't seem fair right. to continue riding, so we found you know a place with a pasture where he could live, you know, the rest of his life more comfortably. Mm -hmm. So I was no longer riding him, but he was still my horse. Um, And that's when I kind of started to lose that, like, oh, I just missed my horse, but I still Mm -hmm. had him at that time. 
And I started being curious about the Mustangs. And I'm not really sure what triggered it. I think I had heard of like wild horses, but never really studied them. And then I had kind of learned what was going on with them in the U.S., how um, a lot of these horses are being rounded up. There's this kind of big debate about how much, how many horses the lands can sustain. But um, the bigger issue I think a lot of people have too is like how it's, it's just being really mishandled the whole situation Mm -hmm. with how they round up the horses and then they try to adopt them, um, which sounds ideal. But then what happens is there's just not enough. Horses are expensive animals. Not everyone can just take a wild horse. Um, so then Who a lot of them is that, is that a federal government thing that they manage? Wild um, horses? Yeah, it's the Bureau of Land Management that manages gotcha. it. But then they, a lot of these horses end up in holding pens that can't be adopted. And then it's just this kind of not ideal situation that a lot of people are like, okay, we get it. We're trying to manage the land and the horses, but it's being so poorly mismanaged right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of wanted to go see it for myself and kind of that was a way for me to reconnect with the horses. And then when I had started photographing this series back in 2016, I'd go out like maybe once or twice a year if I could and tried to go see them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I went up to the first place I ever saw them was in Colorado. And then there's a couple other places in Utah and then the border like um, Nevada has a lot on the border of California is where Mm -hmm. I'd go frequent a lot as well. Um, And then when my horse passed away, it was that kind of final like, oh my gosh, like I'm a girl without a horse. Like I need to finish this series. And it really pushed me to get back out there and continue to photograph them and really want to share this work and why I was creating it with the public. And yeah, that kind of, I actually was printing these in platinum and palladium, which like you said, I'm kind of a nerd about um, photography history. And I had discovered- Talk about that a little bit. I'm interested to hear more about like- Yeah. uh, Yeah, you don't do things just like like the way everybody else does. (laughs) I know. You have like a more- (laughs) I like to make my life difficult always. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, with this body of work, I wanted to do something different and they were so special to me. And I think a part of it was sharing the story of these horses, but um, learning more about preserving like photography prints and history and seeing some of these older like vintage pieces was really fascinating to me and learning more about archival printing and framing was something I wasn't exposed to, you know, previously in my career. And that was something I really started to embrace. Like, well, if I'm making these pieces, obviously I want them to last forever. And that was something I really valued in my work. So I started studying and I wanted to hand make these pieces because the horses felt so personal to me. And I actually was going to do Um, traditional like silver gelatin prints, which are kind of your standard black and white, like darkroom prints. Most of them are gelatin silver. And I went to um, the Weston Gallery had, maybe it's the Weston Collective, they had opened up a new photo lab in Carmel. And I went down there and was like, maybe I can do this, but I don't shoot film is the problem. I actually do shoot digitally. And I was trying to figure out like, this would be cool. I'd love to use, and it was um like they were giving public access to the darkroom if you wanted. So like, this is so cool. Oh, like I don't wow. have a darkroom at home, awesome. but when I went, it was kind of this problem of like, oh, I don't know how to make a negative that I need to make the hand prints. I think there's ways to do it, but it just was kind of overwhelming. And I was like, I don't know. Now I still need this middleman in my process that I kind of want to be hands-on. And mm-hmm. he mentioned um, like, oh, we also give workshops on platinum and palladium, but I think what had happened at the time, the prices had spiked so much. They had stopped offering some of the classes at the time. And um, he's like, we'll let you know. But, you know, typical me, I was like, what is this platinum printing? And then I wasn't even aware and had actually kind of gone down the rabbit hole of platinum prints. And some of these photographers, like I know Imogen Cunningham has done some platinum prints. Um, I mean, Edward Weston has as well. Uh, another one was Edward Curtis, who did a lot of work on the natives. We talked about that really, a little 
you, you sent me a link to the Edward yeah, yeah. yeah 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 and because I'm kind of I think that comes from my graphic design background as well like loving the printing and the tangible part so once I learned that that process um, was a little bit easier to do from home mm-hmm. the chemicals themselves um, were a little bit harder to get and more expensive but I didn't need like an enlarger you don't really need a dark room. I mean, you need a worm where you can wash them, but you can work actually mm-hmm. in incandescent light. So it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be completely dark. And it just felt like, wow, this is such a cool process. It's something I can do mm-hmm. on my own. And you can actually create digital negatives. So I do shoot digitally, but I create, you essentially print them out on a paper, on like a transparency paper. Gotcha. Um, the hardest part is actually calibrating that, which is hilarious. I thought that would be easy. Like, nip, print negative, but it's not that easy. <laughs> not that easy. Um, <laughs> But it was really cool to play with this new process. And I felt like it fit kind of with my work of the wild Mustangs. And sorry, this is kind of a tangent here trying to explain this. No, this process. is very interesting. I, I really appreciate this conversation. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, sure. and um, I actually used a slightly different process. It's called a printout process. So uh-huh. it is it is old. Um, it was developed, I think, in the late 1800s. But most people used the traditional platinum where you use developers. So this process I was using doesn't use a developer. So it was a little bit more environmentally friendly. Okay. Um, and essentially the image is revealed. It's almost like a cyanotype, if anyone listening is familiar with that process. Um, when I, I hand paint the paper with platinum and palladium uh-huh. and when it's in a mix of iron and when it's exposed to UV light, uh-huh. um, the image is exposed, I mean, within a matter of minutes, whereas the traditional one, you have to run it through um, the developer, but that's because of a different form of iron that's used. The only reason people don't use it as frequently is because you need to control it with humidity, which can be, you know, kind of difficult, but being near the coast, it's a little bit easier. Um, we have more humidity here. So it was very lucky that I was able to use that method because it was a bit more environmentally friendly, easier to work with, but it was so fun to make these pieces and they're so special to me. And I was like, I want them Mm-hmm. to be valued as like unique handmade pieces. They're it sounds like an expensive process. It is, but I mean, I didn't have to buy enlargers and things. So, you know, gotcha. everything kind of offsets itself. Like I could, at, for a lab to do it, very, very expensive. Like there's no way I would have paid a lab. It's either I make it or it's not happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, basically. But it was really fun that to be able to print these myself and you can see the hand painted brush strokes that I did. And a lot of it was a learning process because I essentially did tons of Googling um, on like, you know, the safety of the chemicals and following the process. But um, once these pieces were made, it was kind of cool. Cause I was like, well, I want these pieces to be intimate, to feel precious, like these, how I value these horses, but I also want it to last forever. And platinum is one of the, um, if not the most archival printing method, because the platinum is actually embedded into the, the, um, the cotton paper. So essentially as long as the paper lasts is how long the print will last in theory, which is cool. So That's it kind of brings cool. me back to, I guess, blockchain is when I discovered this. It all just kind of went, things went haywire because I finished these right after I had my son is when I started printing them. I didn't want right. to be around the chemicals when I was pregnant. Sure, sure. That so, um, after that, um, I mean, and I'm still safe. I use gloves and everything, but just yeah, to be yeah. safe, I didn't want to mess with it. So as soon as he was born in 20, end of 2019, I started printing these and then the pandemic happened and it was like, wait, I've just spent the last year or so researching this, finally printing the pieces and now I have nowhere to show them. And even um, like some of the galleries I was in touch with are like, we're pushed back years, people that were just were and like somewhat a notable photographer had passed away. They're like, we can't even to a retrospective of his work, his work for two years because everything's being pushed so far. And it was like, 
okay, I've just spent years creating this work and now I don't know what to do with it because no one's really showing anything. Um, and I kind of, I put it on Instagram, but kind of, it doesn't really do them justice to be honest. And I didn't really know what to do with it. I was so proud of it and just decided to put it out in the world because what else are we doing during COVID if we're all stuck at home? Um, but kind of just felt disappointed of like, oh, I'm so excited for this work. I don't know where to show it. I don't know where to talk about it. I want people to see it. Instagram, is they're there, but it doesn't quite do them justice how I want it, them to be seen. Um, and it was actually right after we moved home to Southern California that is literally, I think like the next week or two was when I just stumbled upon um, the Clubhouse app. A photographer had shared it with me and then got in there. And within a matter of days or weeks, people started talking about crypto art and photography. And I was like, what? what is this? And it, it piqued my interest. And especially for me, um, like preserving things on chain, like I said, I've always been interested in preserving art. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, what fascinated me the most was like the digital scarcity, but ability to preserve your work. So that's why it kind of was like the perfect pairing, even though I had printed these physically and as one of ones, um, discovering this new technology that I didn't even know existed was, and it took me a while though. I think I discovered yeah. it back in January of 2021. And I really sat on it for six months until August until I minted them because I was like, I don't know. I've already, I've already printed these, but I love this technology. I'm excited by it, but I kind of couldn't wrap my brain around it, but I was really intrigued by it. What people listening might not even understand is that once something's minted into the blockchain, like it's never going anywhere. It's there forever. As long as the blockchain exists, it's there. You can't delete it. <laughs> you can burn it, but it's still in the burn wallet. <laughs> it still it still exists, <laughs> right? Yeah. What was that like for you? Trans, you know, getting your mind wrapped around like all of a sudden now you're in this totally new technology and this new space. Like, what was the first thing you minted as an NFT? What was? It was it was the wild mustangs. That was them. Okay. Um, I think because that work was so important to me, and it yeah. it's kind of funny. Once I minted it, people are always talking about this space and NFTs and like crypto being like the wild west right. and there, you know, there's the crypto punk, like cowboys, the cowboy hats are always a big theme. I was like, this is actually really funny. Like that wasn't planned, right. but I also kind of think that's kind of fun. I was like, I entered the wild west with the wild Mustangs. And yeah, <laughs> in yeah. when you, when you minted the, the wild Mustangs, there's 20 pieces in that collection. Is that right? And they're all each, and they're all one of ones. Yes. They're all one of ones. What, what was that like for you? That process to, to mint the, did you how did you do that how did you come by minting this collection exciting um it was on so it was on OpenSea at the time uh -huh. the really the only places to mint i want to say there was super rare which was curated and mostly right. one of ones right um nifty gateway did like bigger drops so that didn't seem right for me at the time because i was still an emerging artist who had never minted in this did space. you do the drop yourself um, i mean did you do this collection oh, yeah, you did all the minting I'm, and everything i am yeah. myself and i <laughs> <laughs> okay. Everything is just, just solo. Um, well, that, that collection's done quite well for, uh, I mean, it looks like your floor price is somewhere all close to 10 ETH right now, which is really cool. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it was really exciting to see. Awesome. You know, like for some, just, you know, somebody to just kind of randomly say, okay, I'm a photographer. I'm going to jump into the NFT space meant some pictures that you took on to the blockchain and all of a sudden you got a collection a couple of years later that's trading at 10 ETH. That's pretty. Yeah. Well, something. You did saw, something. <laughs> thank you. Well, and I think they saw the value that I saw in the horses and mm, yeah. um, so obviously the art itself, but I also just really value the tech. I know a lot of people have minted 
Um, like even uh, there's a couple artists I follow that have minted stuff since like 2019, but I think uh, way back then people really, you know, really wasn't even sure what the industry was minting like iPhone shots, like funny things like, what is this? And then um, they saw the way I valued it with art and like my love for these horses. Cause yeah, I mean, I don't ask, you know, I, I like to keep things very transparent. Like I don't ask my collectors to like set a floor. And originally someone said it at like a hundred and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I had, it was my first ever secondary sale was of the wild Mustangs and it was at seven Ethereum. And that just like absolutely blew me away. I think that's a, that's a proper floor. That's very good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that um, from what I know of you, you went on to create your own contract on Manifold. Yes. Oh, so when you were asking about minting, so um, if I can backtrack just for a second. Please, Um, yes. Like at the time, because things have, it's crazy, this space, you know, they say how fast it goes. And it's so true. Like I like learned this space about a year and a half ago, minted about a year ago. And even then it's so much has developed in a great way, but it's crazy how fast it goes. And that's what I think is fun. I've always kind of had this like nerdy tech background that that's Mm -hmm. something that I enjoy. I know a lot of artists get overwhelmed by it, but I actually just really love it and like keeping tab on it and what's changing and like thinking about the future. But um, I didn't know there were two different types of tokens. I knew on OpenSea that it was called lazy minted where it's essentially like minted through the platform and not recorded on the blockchain until the sale happens. Right. But I didn't really understand more than that. No one had really talked about, and especially on Clubhouse, no one was really talking about contracts for artists, the different types of tokens, where the art is stored. And I was just aware of like, oh my gosh, if it's on the blockchain, it's permanent. Right. Um, and OpenSea, even though I understood kind of the benefits and a little bit of it, um, mm-hmm. I didn't fully understand it, let's put it that way. But um, it was also one of the only places to realistically do a collection. Um, at the time, Foundation was invite only by artists, which is okay, but they were still mostly doing one of ones. Artists had just a very small amount of images, but it was also very expensive at the time. I think with the price of Ether and the gas fees that were really high during kind of the bull run, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, people were spending easily three to $400 just to mint oh, yeah. list one piece. So for an artist who's like, New, no idea if their work, and there was like very rarely any wildlife or black and white photography back then. Um, you know, to spend thousands of dollars in this new crypto space, I don't know. It was a little like, I don't know. Can I do this? Can I pull this off? This is it. So um, I decided to go with OpenSea because that was actually at the time where we saw like Twin Flames and a couple other collections. Um, and it seemed like with larger bodies of work, that's where some of the photographers were going. And I think a lot of it was cost too, because realistically, a lot of people just couldn't afford gotcha. to mint a collection on foundation um, right. or hire a dev. So I did decide to do that. But then after learning more about it, um, I someone brought up the conversation, I think by the time I had gotten on Twitter about owning your own contract and then the different types of tokens um, and how the 721s are the unique ones. Um, I, I love 55s still can be. I have in the metadata that they're one of ones, but it really piqued my interest of like, wait, there's more going on under here that, and I kind of laughed at myself like, wait, I'm so good with the tech. How come I didn't, how did I miss this? So, but it also realistically at the time, like there's no way I would have had to wait another eh, six months to mint them or something. Cause even, um, so once I discovered smart contracts, I discovered Manifold um, and what they were building for artists and, for those who aren't familiar, owning your own contract, it's mostly owning your own code. Um, people kept DMing me asking about like, what legal 
phrases should I put in there? I was like, well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm sure you can. It's not really. When people um, hear the word contract, more, I think people think like legal terms. And when we're yes. talking in Web3, when we say the word contract, that's not what we're talking about. Where the contract is like the code behind. Um, yes, exactly. I know we kind of need a new word for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, essentially the contract is like owning the code. So there's really this ownership to your work because a couple of things you've seen in the industry with like, OpenSea with some of like the trade wars going on, there's actually, they have to comply with like US regulation. And there are artists that have actually had their work taken down and removed from OpenSea that was minted because essentially it's minted on the OpenSea contract. So they have full control of the work in a way, even though it's minted by your wallet. So there's all these little caveats that I didn't even understand when I came into the industry. And I still keep my wild mustangs on OpenSea because it's part of the history of how I came into this space. But you know, sure, if sure. you know, God forbid anything happens to them, I'm like, okay, I have backup plans or we'll see. <laughs> we'll address that if hopefully we never need to. Um but yeah. it was interesting to learn that like, wait, so this is on the blockchain and supposed to be permanent, but because OpenSea owns the contract, I all of a sudden had this weird fear of like, wait, I didn't even know what I just did. And I feel like somebody else owns my work in a way. And that really bothered me. So I actually, I waited and I just, I did a lot of research and there were some other developers I had been put in touch with. How did you do this research? Where did you go to do the research? Like, how did you learn all this stuff? Like, it's a good point. I guess it was probably Google and Twitter. Where else are you going to learn about Web3? There's not like, you know, it's not like you can go to school for this stuff. It's so new. Yeah, no, exactly. And I've had friends talk about that. Like, how come yeah. in the universities they didn't teach all this? Yeah, it's like, they don't have that. Because you, it's being made right now. And that's like right. kind of the fun is, you know, by the time there's a course on what we're doing in crypto right now, it's going to be obsolete or something exactly. new is come along. So it's kind of exciting to be, just throw yourself into it and just learn. Um, but I started studying more about contracts. And then the thing that made me nervous is like once they're deployed, you can't change them. And also like if you don't know how to read it, I actually was almost going to do my own because I have a background with HTML, CSS, and PHP from my like graphic design and web background. So I do understand a bit of code, but I'm not, I'm not a developer. And once I saw what it took and kind of how permanent some of these contracts were, it really scared me because I was like, ugh. I don't know if I want an error. Um, and I was too nervous to just use a developer that I didn't know or trust because if there's something in the code, like they could own it and you might not know. Um, so I had discovered Manifold and saw some of the artists that they worked with and really had a lot of trust in what mm -hmm. they were building. And they had developed this new studio, which mm -hmm. was since released in December. But I got early access in November because I was like on their Discord, like, hey, guys, I want this. I want this so badly. Um, so it was exciting. I got to like, play with the studio that they had developed for artists to just easily deploy your own contract. So essentially, because all my work is, um, my newer one of ones are on this contract, um, I have full ownership of them, which is really cool. Because if you want to change any of the metadata, or, you know, update the graphics, it's, I control, like, if a platform closes down, I won't lose the work, I can just sell it on another platform, whereas minting on OpenSea or some of the other platforms, there's always you know, there's always a little bit of a risk because it's minted through their contract. That I don't think they, people realize, like, you know, that, you know, we're, we're kind of like bantering about this contract thing back and forth. Yeah, sorry, I people, tend to go on. But people don't realize is like, there's been some epic fails 
in the NFT space and contract deployment. Like I'm thinking of like the Akutar thing where they got like dollars locked up into yes. perpetuity. <laughs> they, they can't ever get out, you know, like, I mean, there's been some big, and it was mis- just like one long line, line of-, of code. <laughs> yeah. Right? Someone yeah. described it to me as like a loop or something. I don't fully grasp it, but that was sad. Yeah. There were like millions of dollars locked in the code that they can never change. <laughs> yeah. These are great founders, great people, great project. Yeah. You know, one bad line of code in their contract, you know, and they'd lock themselves out of almost, you know. Yeah, and 10, they really try their millions best. Millions and millions you know. of dollars. Yeah, and they've done a great job of resolving that. But those kind of they things have. are make make people know, like, this contract yeah. stuff can be quite serious, especially when you're And even about- still, the other one that's brought up with artists that I actually understood this one since the Clubhouse days, which is kind of funny, um, with royalties. I know that's something I think you're going to ask about too, but um, royalties are an amazing thing in this industry as well. Because yeah, I was going to ask you about royalties. What are your thoughts on you that? You can ask me about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're, you're, you're doing good, Jess. Let's just keep going. What, what do you think about what, what do you think about royalties? I love them, and I think right on. Um, even in trad art, I think I've seen attempts. Like in California, they tried to enforce them a long time ago. That ran into some issues with that, and I think people see how hard it is to make a living in the arts. And a lot of people that collect art and value the art and the artists do want to see them have a sustainable career. And it does feel pretty mutual that people are okay with if I make a profit to give some back to the artists because they understand what it takes to make it in these careers. Um, But it's just been impossible to implement and control. And like, what if you buy a piece of art and you don't know who it's by or the artist moves and you can't come to like there's all these kind of complexities that make it not easy but when the royalties are essentially written into the contracts and it's easy to find you know where the royalty goes and who it goes to it's just made it so seamless with the way it's integrated into web3 um so i'm a big believer in royalties i actually think it should be a little bit higher sometimes for artists but <laughs> there is one one small caveat that i have been aware of for like a year and a half that um yeah, you, you, like you know, you have to be careful who's an expert in the space and do your, do your own research is always the term. And I did my own research and I discovered that the royalties essentially aren't guaranteed, even when they're written into the contract. It's um, to the best of my understanding, you know, don't. <laughs> it's essentially like putting into the code, you know, this is the royalty for the piece and, you know, the address it goes to, but it's not enforceable. It's not so enforceable. Platform, it has to be enforced through the platform where it's bought and sold yeah. is my understanding. So, so yes. you can do some, so like I can have a, a, a Jessica Cardellucci piece and I can make a, like a backdoor deal with somebody and do a pseudo swap and you'll never see it. You know, you'll never see it. Um, yeah. So, and I've known about that for a yeah. while that that was a possibility, but it doesn't, it doesn't totally scare me. Cause there's, I think there's always going to be people sure. that try to get around something no matter what you do. And there's also like, I mean, I only understand the tax so much, like I said, but for like, sure. you can't just put a royalty on every transfer. Cause what if you want to transfer it to another wallet and you have to pay the artist? Like there's all these kind of complexities that make it hard to enforce like you said someone can do an over-the-counter deal where they could just transfer it to someone and then they could transfer them the money and just just go around the platform but there's also platforms that can just choose as we've seen is it um pseudo swap forgive me if that's pseudo swap is definitely one um that ignores the royalties and this recently came up with the conversation with a bunch of artists of like wait we didn't know this was possible like they this is where i do think it is so important to 
um, you know, try to be a part of the industry and stay on top of what's being developed because it affects you as an artist. And a lot of people didn't realize, well, like I said, even with OpenSea, there was so much that I've learned since I've minted there. And I still think it's a great platform. And for artists that are new in the industry, it did help with costs. So I actually am still a big supporter of OpenSea, but just once I realized the other possibilities, I think it was great to take those profits and invest further in my work. But um, yeah. But just understanding like the decisions you're making because not enough people talk about it. So I think it's good to have these conversations. And with royalties, most platforms do want to honor them and do want to see the artists paid. And most collectors I've seen as well. Like they're not most sure. I'm sure there's always a shady person. But like most are here to support the arts. But there is that possibility. Unless there's some huge competitor with OpenSea, like a platform emerges that's going to really compete with OpenSea and they choose not to take royalties. I don't see it becoming a huge problem. You yeah, know, I, I think mean, like I you said, what, it'll probably be, yeah. I think people can, oh, there's always a workaround on everything. You know, you can always. There do. is. So, um, I mean, I kind of have faith in the industry, <laughs> but it was interesting because it became a huge conversation amongst artists that did not realize um, how the royalties work. And they're like, wait, I thought even with Manifold, our royalties are in the contract. I was like, they are, but it's not enforceable and automatic. Like people, their understanding was a little bit different. So it shocked people that a platform could ignore the royalties, but I'm not too concerned about it, but just kind of touching on like how important it is to understand like the tech and the things we're working with. So. All right on. Do you do any collaborations with anyone? Have you done any collaborate? Have you done any collaborations? Are you thinking about doing anything like that? I was going to ask you if you had a team, but I know the answer. You don't. I think you do everything yourself, right? It sounds like. I do. It's a problem. I'm like kind of a control freak in my art. Um, I'm trying, but I have had a few people reach out about collabs, so I am open to them. I I don't think I'll give it a hard no. As of now, I'm definitely focusing on my one-on-ones, and my art is so personal. I think that's the other part, too. Um, A lot of the one-on-ones I'm doing have been um, like personal, like images of my home and the place I'm from and self-portrait mm-hmm. work. But I do think I still want to keep an open mind. So I wouldn't say no to collapse, but I definitely, I, <laughs> I'm a little skittish <laughs> at the same time because I'm so used to doing everything myself. Have you, have you, have you seen what's going on with nifty gateways? Have you thought about like, you know, 33 does a lot with nifty gateways. I was wondering, do you have anything in the works there or have you talked yeah, about it uh, at all? Not at the moment. I did drop my first edition actually. Um, so that was really fun, but I think, no, I haven't done it yet, but it's in the back of my mind. So we'll see. So yeah. So some of these, uh, curators like 33 and RX2 and all these other, um, you know, big curators in the space are creating like storefronts on NFT or nifty gateways. I'm sorry, which is, you know, create like, like these are their own little curated galleries, but you can go through the nifty gateway platform to collect. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And it's another thing we talk about in the industry is curation, too. Because, um, I mean, I think we want to give artists more ability to be discovered. And in traditional art, I think everyone just felt, like, even myself, it was so hard to break into. And, like, I also understand that realistically, like, galleries, especially with physical spaces, can only take on so many artists. Like, if they try to do an exhibition, they can only fit so many physical pieces. And then they want to have it hung for a certain amount of time. Like, there are just certain like limitations to chat art. Um, but also there's so many artists that feel like I'm not accepted. How do I get in? It's so hard. So this has really opened up the space. But um, we obviously when you go on OpenSea, it's so easy to get lost. There's so much good art. So then we start needing curation. But then how do we want to curate? Because we you know, want to be able to include more artists. So I think this kind of like 
decentralized curation and letting people open their own storefronts has been really interesting and nifty. Like you said, letting 33 curate similar to super rare opening these spaces has been kind of an interesting move in the industry, how to, you know, still have, keep things open, but also opportunities for people in the industry to curate themselves as well. Love that. Do you, did you have a, did you have something in a exhibition at NFT New York? I feel like you did. Yes, in the Super Rare Gallery. Uh, one of my Super pieces Rare is Gallery. in their Soho Gallery. Yes. Yeah, right, right on. Which piece was in? Oh, it's still there currently. What yes, piece is actually, on exhibition today is, there? Um, today is the last day. It is the Cypress at Point Lobos. And right I, I think you can air this if, once it airs in a few days. Um, but my Four Palms is actually going to be exhibited in the gallery as well, which is right on. Right on. Well, we got it a hasn't been before announced before publicly. <laughs> It'll take up plenty of time for you to let that. So yeah, out. I think it's actually going to be announced shortly, so that should be okay. Right on. How does that happen? How did you come by? How do you come by getting your piece um, exhibited there? Um, that's a great question. The it's really just trying to stay, you know, connected in the industry. And I mean, uh -huh. I'm I'm really awkward at networking. <laughs> it's really fun. I'm actually just really bad at marketing and stuff. Like I'm better at creating art, but I just try to stay present in the industry and, you know, stay in people's minds, like keep conversations mostly on like Twitter. Um, and I had actually asked um, on the, one of the curators at Super Rare about some exhibitions. Um, and she actually reached out to me a few days later and was like, hey, we have some availability in this upcoming exhibition. Would you like to have a piece? Um, and obviously I said yes, which was the Cypress at Point Lobos that I chose to have in that exhibition, which is currently right now in New York. Um, and then the other one actually was unexpected. They actually reached out to me and said, we'd like to include this piece in this upcoming, um, you know, exhibition that we're curating in September. Is that okay with you? We'd love to showcase it. And obviously I was like, yes, please. <laughs> so it's a little bit of both. And I think just kind of, you know, staying in touch with people, just being genuine and sharing your art. And obviously, you know, my work doesn't fit every opportunity. Like that's okay too. But when they do come around, it is really exciting, but also just trying to, you know, stay active and, you know, remind people, you know, I'm still here. I'm still proud of my art. And then it's cool to see eventually people, you know, find an opportunity and want to include it. So it's, it was an honor for sure. Thank you for that. Um, look, I wanted to ask you, since you're a photographer, what, what cameras are you using? Do you have like more than one or do you have like one specific camera that you shoot? With? Um, I used to shoot with my Canon 5DSR. Um, back when I was doing more like event photography on the side, oh, that was a while ago. I used to have two. Um, but mostly for art, I just, I loved the sensor on the 5DSR. It's a bigger 50 megapixel. Right. Um, but I've had that one for, oh my goodness, probably six or eight years now. It's starting right. to, you know, past its prime. And I get so comfortable with my tools. But I actually, after I sold the Wild Mustangs, used some of that money and bought um, a Fujifilm. This is the first time I've ever switched um, makers or models of cameras. I've been Canon my whole life. You know, once you get invested in the glass, it's a pretty hefty investment with all the lenses. So it was kind of scary, but I had seen some work by photographers I admire and it was just this beautiful touch. And I was like, I just like, I hate to put so much focus on the tool because I'm also a big believer. No, of, like, no, no, no. I love you just said I actually, I'm a Fuji camera yeah. guy myself. Yeah, and, and I am a professional so photographer or an artist, but I like taking pictures. But I have a food yeah, and I love um, my camera. And I just <laughs> took the risk and I asked one photographer about it and was like, um, I was looking at, so I want, I was really intrigued by medium format. There's something about the perspective and the mm -hmm. bigger sensor that mm -hmm. just the way it renders like texture so beautifully and the perspective uh -huh. is a little bit different. Um, 
And I was asking about it. And, you know, I hate to be like, oh, you need the cameras to make a better photo. Because there's some incredible photographers out here, actually some from other continents, using iPhones. And I'm blown away. Like, oh, my gosh, if they get a DSLR, they're going to blow us all out of the water. Um, But it just – I was so fascinated by it that I – took the risk. I did some research, asked a few people who had shot with them, and I got the Fujifilm, um, the GFX 50R. So it's one of their medium formats, but it, right I was very lucky. I got it um, on sale right before the holidays last year nice. and just got one lens, um, and then they discontinued it. But it is, it is such fun camera. It's what's called like a rangefinder style, and I just kind of feel like I'm shooting film, and that's an experience I've never had with a digital camera. Mm-hmm. So I really love the way they design it, but also the way you know, it renders the images is so beautiful. So that's the only camera I shoot on right now. And I just have one lens. I might buy one more. It's the equivalent of a 50. I think it's the 63 um, millimeter. But it's, I, I am, like I said, kind of a minimal minimalist in a way in my art because I think too many options, I get overwhelmed very easily. So I like yeah. to keep my gear. I mean, it's funny. I had a post where I was calling it simple and people were like, whoa, <laughs> that's a beast of a camera. I was like, okay, you're right. I'm not dark. It, it's, it's a very awesome camera. But right. I met like a setup wise, I'm someone who will just go on a trip or go shoot and just, I will have one body, one lens, and then just kind of, I like a challenge in a way. So I like to make it work. And the 50 perspective, I might do a little bit more of a telephoto, but um, I like the kind of natural perspective and it gives you the option to kind of like you yourself can like back up and get a wider shot or physically sure. get closer. And it's a very natural view. Mm-hmm. So I think it also complements the way I like to shoot kind of like a natural scene as well and a little bit more flexibility but yeah less is more for me when I shoot in a way when it comes to gear awesome what about your relationship with your collectors how do you maintain relationships with your collectors how do you engage with them Um, how do you find people that are going to buy your art sure I mean most of it is just staying active on Twitter um and I try to, you know, I obviously f- will follow them back anytime I see someone that collects my work. Um, there was one that was completely anonymous. So that one was kind of hard because I was like, oh, no, what if I want to reach out to them? Like, there's no Twitter with their OpenSea, no nothing. And it actually turned out they reached out to me a while back when they were like, I just want to thank you for creating this art. Um, nice. They still didn't like publicly tie that they own the piece, but I did find out who the collector was. And that was really special that they trusted me enough to share, like, you know, I don't want to publicly you know, it's kind of hard in this space knowing that somebody famous finances are tied publicly. <laughs> yeah. People, so I, I completely respect why people do choose to stay more anonymous in this space. It's like nobody, yeah. it's a little weird having your, all of your financial history in the space, especially people who invested early, just publicly tied to you. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I usually will DM them and write them and thank them for collecting the piece. Um, if it comes naturally, I'll continue the conversation. But I try not to force it because some people do love to collect the art, but they're kind of too busy. Like a few have shared with me, like, I loved your work of the horses. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like, I don't, you know, they're like, I don't know a lot about marketing or sharing. You know, they kind of were upfront of like, I'm not very good at like promoing and networking on Twitter with artists, mm. but like, but I love your piece. I'm so happy to have it. So, um, you know, I don't try to push the relationship, but I do I try to you. check in or yeah. if I have something coming up, I'll try to share with them out of excitement. Like when I got on super rare, I went and shared with some of the collectors like, Hey, just letting you know, this was, you know, an exciting like milestone in my career and just wanted to share it with you guys. And I try to keep it genuine. Um, yeah, and one I of my think anybody that's collecting your work would be, be very happy to know that that's happening. Yeah. It's, that, it's hard. Yeah. It's easy to overthink as an artist. I'm like, yeah. am I spamming 
people. Like, uh, <laughs> you don't always see things on your timeline. Too, Every so artist I talk to says exactly that. Like, that's their relationship. Yeah. They're like, I don't want to over, I don't want to come across as pushy. I don't want to come across as like being like salesy, but. But, you know, yeah. I think everybody feels the same way, you know. But on um, the collector side, though, I can tell you, you know, we're out here. We want to know what's happening. Like, I want to know if you have a career <laughs> dropping or an addition drop. You know, I want to know what's happening in your, yeah, with your stuff. It's, yeah. yeah. No, thank you. It's, it's always great to know because we always kind of overthink it, too. And you're like, I don't ever want to, like, push my art on people. But at the same yeah. time, some people... Um, like, oh, I'm so sad. I missed that. I didn't see it. And you're like, oh, shoot, maybe I should have told people. So it, that's been kind of the fun, like learning, you know, we, me, myself and I, like a lot of artists out here are all self-represented. Most mm-hmm. of us, like, right. we kind of don't know what we're doing. Like we have a, somewhat of an idea, but we're all kind of learning at the same time. Um, yeah, but even collectors though, like um, Alal Musa was one of my first collectors of my wild Mustangs and we ended up becoming really great friends. So there's also relationships like that nice. where um, I resonated with her work and she loved mine and we just kind of wow. had that natural bond and became close friends in the industry as well. So there's also, it just kind of depends on the collector. So I try to keep in touch, but not force it basically. Who Whose work are you collecting? Who do you like? To, who, are you, who are you watching? Who's your favorite artists? Ooh, oh my gosh, there's so many. Oh, that's really hard to pick. I mean, Ayla, I love her work. Who? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Ayla Musa, I love her work. Um, I wish I could collect one of her one-of-ones, but very quickly went out of my budget. Um, so that's how some of these things are. They're just so expensive. There's so much good stuff out there, but some of it's Yeah, like that's how, I think the hardest um, on an artist budget, <laughs> editions have been really great because I've been able to collect other photographers. Mm-hmm. Um, Angel's one, who's I collected recently. She's been in the space for a long time. I love, she does like old film work, um, like beautiful colors and a lot of the ocean. So it's something I resonated with as well. Um, even black and white. Um, Amy Woodward is one that I love and she documents a lot of motherhood, which is something I resonate with. You, so you I support a lot of female artists, huh? Yes, that's something I've been trying to do as well because it's, it is a lot harder for women in the industry. There's less of us here. For um, sure, for sure. You know, less, they succeed at a different level. And it's always kind of a hard one to talk about. So I do just, that's how I kind of try to give back and recognize more women in the industry. And I've collected from plenty of men as well. But um, I do try when I can. No, I think that's a fair them. point. I mean, you know, women are definitely a minority in the NFT Web3 space. Like, it's you know, if you go on crypto Twitter at all, I mean, it's like 99% <laughs> guys, you know, so... A lot of mad respect to all the women that are out here that are sticking and staying and creating and, you know, being coming successful like yourself. You know, it's not probably the easiest thing to do. Yeah. And it's I grew up with, I mean, I think kind of being like a horse girl, too. I've always been kind of a tomboy type. My dad always made this joke that like I was his son. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I guess so. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. But I was always like more interested in being outdoors. Like, and a lot of our neighbors were guys as well. They'd be skateboarding. So I would be out with my camera because there were like no girls in the neighborhood. I don't know. I don't so know. I did grow up with a sister, but I kind of was always surrounded by a lot of guys and especially right. in like the horse industry. I was like, I don't know. I'd rather be out dirty on a ranch or something and go shopping uh, that's always just kind of been in me so my dad always teased me about that which was funny but um so I kind of felt like coming in like that's never scared me in a sense like a lot of my really close friends in high school were also guys as well and I always felt you know pretty respected and supported by them even career-wise had pretty good opportunities like um the photographer I worked with obviously was a male but like he I always felt really 
elevated me. And like, I would come in with fresh perspectives, like Mm. new out of college and he'd be like, Oh, teach me this, show me that. And like, he really embraced whatever I wanted to share with him. So I always felt pretty supported, but um, it was kind of interesting entering this industry. It was like a different Mm -hmm. level of competitiveness. And I I don't know. I think the, the networking was a little bit trickier because a lot of the guys like just connect easier. And I don't want to, I'm trying not to say it in like a bad way, just kind of like in a natural way. Uh It's just, you gravitate towards what you're comfortable with. And sometimes like as a woman in the industry, it's been a bit harder to like try to network naturally if if I'm like spitting this out. Right. But um, I think things are getting better. And there's a lot of people out here who want to see the women succeed and are trying to help. And uh, some of the women's work is, you know, a bit different. I'm like, do men want to collect pictures of like women and babies? I don't know. But then um, some have recognized, you know, the emotion and the quality of the work and wanted to support it. So I think it's just been, we're all learning at the same time, but it's, it has been great to see people that do see different types of work that maybe they wouldn't have collected in the past. That's a bit outside of their comfort zone and kind of um, trying to open up to that and understand it and want to support it as well. So it's, it's been a slow process, but I think it's going slowly. <laughs> well, <laughs> nice. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, before we end today, what, where do you think, the, where do you see the space going in the future? Do you have any views of like where we're headed as, as a oh, whole in the web I mean, crypto art scene? I just really think it's the future. I mean, I don't think physical art is going anywhere, but I just think it opens up. Like there's so many artists here, even like, um, like DK that really worked in the commercial arts and kind of felt like with like animation or graphics that there was no way to have their work collected. Um, So that's been really fascinating to see people that felt like the only way to pursue a career in the arts was to do it commercially. And now they're realizing because of NFTs, like this more immersive work, um, like 3D animation, um, you can actually have that work collected. Whereas previously, what were you going to do? Give someone a DVD or something and say, here's I mean, I think people have done that in the past, but you know, that's not very common. Um, most things had to be physically printed. So there's all these new art forms that you really couldn't collect digitally. And even seeing generative art, I'm really fascinated by as well. I think because of my graphic design background, um, I love a lot of the work that's coming from that industry as well. And it's just giving so many creatives these new opportunities to have their work um, collected and valued that really couldn't be done unless you printed it in the past. And um, it's cool to see photography as part of that, but I just also think there's so many industries, but I just see the tech in this industry is so fascinating to me. And I think we're just, we all say it jokingly that we're so early, but I just think what's possible so and like <laughs> with gaming and other applications that I actually think that art is going to be a very, very, very small part of the industry as a whole once like web three and this technology is more adopted by the masses. I think art will just be a tiny part of it, but I also think it's kind of fun that art is really what's leading the way. Cause really when the artist came around is when people started to see how you could use it and value it because without the art, there was really, you know, no demand and no value to it. That's the thing. You're probably right in the future. It's probably not going to be all about the art, but the artists are the ones that brought us to this place, you know, where we Yeah. So that's what excites me most about being here is kind of being a part of that and seeing the future. You know, we all get a bit of FUD of, you know, so many people are like, NFTs are a scam, but I'm like, no, but really it's, I think the future is, is there and it'll be great once more people understand it. And there's still some quirks that, you know, it's eh, like, they need to make it easier for people to access and adopt and be comfortable with. Like, uh, like you said, like learning all of 
the crypto stuff and the safety and security and these contracts and a lot of artists and just people in general are not, it's over their head. It's mm -hmm. too much to, you know, to manage, but I think the future is there and it's so exciting to be a part of it. And like I said, I think art will be a small part of the future, but it's cool that it's leading with the art. So I'm really happy to, to be here and exploring and be a part of it as it's still being developed. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to say about yourself? Like where can we go to find Jessica Cartolucci work? Where, where's the best place to, to look for you in, in the metaverse? Sure. Yeah. Um, my link tree. <laughs> um, okay. Most of my one of ones are on Super Rare, and then uh, my Wild Mustangs editions. And the um, I did a generative art series of a, the GM Sunshine. Those are on OpenSea, which I all have links. Okay, and I'll make sure to link all of your um, socials and your link tree and everything in our show notes, so anybody listening can find you easily. Thank you, and I try to keep it updated on my website as well. But um, there's, I know there's so many places to find art these days. But I try to keep every collection easy to find. So mostly super rare. Right um, on. I open. Yeah. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you giving me an hour and uh, doing this interview. It's uh, been my pleasure to talk to you today, get to know more about you, and I look forward to uh, seeing what you got coming in the future. Thank you, and thank you so much for asking me yes, to. Of be a part on here and come ramble like I usually do <laughs> about <laughs> art and the tech. And it just, I'm so fascinated by, it. I just love it. And I, you know, equally love the art that I'm creating. That's personal to me just as much as I love the tech behind it. So it's fun to come chat about what's going on. And I really appreciate your time as well. So thank you. I'm Chris Harper. This has been another episode of the ledge. I'd like to thank my guest today, Jessica Cartolucci. It's been a privilege to have the opportunity to know more about you, your life, your art, and what makes you tick. You can find The Ledge on all major podcast sites, such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate this show and review us on the platforms. It would be a great way to help us keep relevant. You can find our contact info and other relevant information about our guests in the show notes. And you can find me on Twitter at Harper underscore underscore Chris or on Instagram at ChrisHarper.eth. Thanks again for joining me on this journey to the ledge of Web3.